Spencer Clavin is with us today. He is one of the editors of the Claremont Review of Books and the features editor of The American Mind. He also hosts the Young Heretics podcast. I'm going to interrupt quickly. How do people get to the Young Heretics podcast, Spencer? It's available wherever fine podcasts are sold. So Apple, Spotify, anywhere else that you get your podcasts. So today he has a foreword to a handy new edition from Regnery of writings by three Stoics, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, and Seneca. That is our topic for the next 30 minutes. Welcome, Mr. Clavin. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. This volume also contains, actually, uh, an introduction uh, by Russell Kirk, who says that the Stoics gave the more thoughtful Romans at the time a sane version of freedom and civic order uh, in spite of all the decadence going wrong around them and the spiritual collapse. Uh, uh, Spencer, is that where we are today? It's certainly close. I mean, there are once you start drawing comparisons between the kind of environment in which Stoicism most flourished um, and our moment, there's really more and more there the closer you look in. In my foreword, I start out by talking about the Hellenistic era, which is when Stoicism got its start, started to come into prominence. And that, like ours, was a time of political fracture, um, inability to reach a cultural consensus. There had been a sort of heyday in Athens not long before when it felt as if perhaps this was the intellectual center of the world and maybe even was going to attain some kind of you know political dominance over the Mediterranean. That fell apart in the Peloponnesian War, and at the same time, so did the unity of philosophy that really had kind of started to take shape from first through Socrates and then Plato and Aristotle. There's kind of this through line, and then there's this splintering of the world that's really nicely mirrored between both people's philosophy and the way they're organizing their lives after the death of Alexander the Great. Really, no one is going to exert anything that plausibly looks like control or unity over the various political factions until Augustus, until the Roman Empire. And, and so the question that kind of always hangs in the air is, what can hold us together? What can stitch the world together? Stoicism was one of the most attractive options and is now becoming, again, one of the most attractive options for a lot of people, young people especially, uh, for explaining what makes sense of things beyond just kind of atoms bouncing in the void. The other big parallel between our time and, and that is, you know, the alternative to Stoicism really was Epicureanism. And although Epicureanism was always sort of a niche, perhaps elite pursuit, it had a lot of currency, especially among the kind of Roman upper crust, as really a, you know, proto-scientific revolution. It, it drew on the theories of Democritus and Lucippus, um, Democritus famous for arguing, as, as many uh, 18th century scientists did, that all human perception was mere convention. It arose out of the collision of atoms uh, colliding in the void. And that's really all there was to things. Looking beyond that was, was a waste of time. If there are gods, they're totally outside of our sphere of influence and control. Um, and in contrast to the disarray, the fracture of that 
worldview, Stoicism provided a unity. It gave a picture of the world that was threaded through everywhere with divine care and intention, and still wasn't a personally interested god of the kind that Christianity would offer. But as we can see in, for instance, the writings of Marcus Aurelius, and I think this is what Kirk is really talking about, um, when the Roman Empire, too, begins to crumble around the edges, and when it starts to seem like even this world empire isn't going to hold fast, or at mm. least isn't going to you know, dominate everyone everywhere for all time, there is a source of stability in believing, or you might say perceiving, that there's something that governs the world besides just human powers. Divine providence, a major feature of, of Stoicism, um, and it's a major aspect, I think, of what makes it newly exciting for people is that, you know, there's now that we live in this online world whose central feature is fracture, is chaos and the constant stream of information. Um, Stoicism is an organizing principle that people feel they can grab onto. I think there's some problems with that that I talk about in the, in the book, but it certainly makes a lot of sense to look at it that way. You use words to, you refer to Rome's, quote, social crack up and political fracture. What do you say to people, uh, you know, Spencer, you know, lighten up. We're, we're not doing that badly. Uh, you know, a lot of my liberal friends, they, they just have the kind of shrug, you know, the eye roll at, at, uh, at the things that, that I, I get a little alarmed about. What's your answer to them? I would say, you know, if you were living in Rome in the 130s BC or at the tail end of the Western Empire, um, things might look pretty good to you, too, among the elites, those that are, you know, living off the kind of comfortable inheritance of a Republican heyday, um, it often takes a while for the aftershock of regime failure to make its way into the very centers of power. And I think that's certainly true. You know, a lot of Roman elites did just great under Augustus. You know, if you were on the side of the regime and the new empire, um, and if, if things, you know, hadn't gone too badly in the preceding civil wars, if you managed to make it out of that unscathed, then you might look out your window and say, what's all the fuss about? Where, why is all these soldiers complaining? I mean, the same would be true, I think, in the, you know, under the Gracchi, for instance, a lot of the senators, this is before the empire, but similarly during a, a time of, of social crack up, a lot of the senators kind of looked out their window and said, what are these Gracchi guys on about? Everything's great for me. I've got my latifundia, I've got my, you know, big servant plantations, um, and it never even occurred to them that the people that they were impoverishing, who were supposed to get some slice of the Roman pie, those were increasingly native Roman soldiers who were losing out on what you might have called the Roman dream. You know, if we have the American dream that is frequently failing now to deliver for middle America, uh, Rome had, had some of the same thing. So I would, you know, I guess I would propose that people who are saying that to you, like, look a little further than their Berkeley suburbs is, is really the, the rub of it. There we go. You, you have a remarkable assertion in your introduction, quote, the Christian church has made Stoics of us all. Well, what do you mean by that? Right. Well, one thing that modern American Christians aren't always aware of, uh, in my experience, is the depth and extent to which Biblical authors, and certainly New Testament authors, are always elbow deep in the surrounding intellectual context of their time. This is true of the Old Testament writers, the prophets, who are very expressly 
playing with and making fun of the grandeur of the Assyrian kings and their pretensions to an eternal dominion. You can find puns in Hebrew on the uh, Akkadian texts that are around that time. And it's true also in the New Testament era, much later, at the, you know, the, the turn of the first century AD with Paul and the apostles, all very profoundly aware, Paul especially, of what the other options were for explaining the world and making sense of things and for living a good life. It's not as if, you know, there were no other alternatives. In fact, Christianity was a very strange and kind of hybrid alternative blended between some of the Greco-Roman world and lots of the Jewish world. And Paul, in his sermons and acts and also in his letters, is constantly quoting and making reference to these various other Hellenistic schools of philosophy. And it's, I would argue that he doesn't ever endorse one specific sect, but he certainly finds a lot that he can work with in Stoicism. The only quotation that I can think of that he uh, offers with sort of unqualified affirmation in the whole of the New Testament is Aratus, a poet of Stoic pedigree, for we are his offspring. Aratus was talking about Zeus. Uh, Paul is talking, of course, about God, the God of Israel. Uh, but he recognizes in Stoicism this you know, the closest thing to an ideal that was very strange in Christianity for its time and was strange in Stoicism as well, that as children of one God, of a single originating divine force, we are all brothers at some essential level. It doesn't matter if you're in chains. It doesn't matter if you're living on the villa. It doesn't matter where you are in the power structures of the human world. In effect, essentially, you are the same as your brother in species, in nature, as, as the next guy. Um, this is something that Seneca, in his letters, one of the letters that I translate in the, in the volume, writes about at length. Um, it's also part of uh, Heracles, who might also translate here a little addendum at the end of this, who liked to imagine himself in increasing concentric circles, extending his fellowship from his immediate family on out to his town into the rest of the world. Um, and what we have to understand as we look back at this stuff um, is that what sounds to us like pure common sense or just general niceness, oh, all men are brothers, um, would have been nothing of the kind at the time in its social milieu, in its philosophical milieu, to say that there is some inherent equality to all of us um, was not only extremely counterintuitive, it seemed manifestly untrue. Aristotle and Plato both talked about ways in which people are deeply different in soul, in ability and capacity, and what have you. And if you live in a purely uh, polytheistic world, that makes sense. Why wouldn't it be the case? This is one of the features of polytheism, is that it doesn't necessarily enforce any kind of unity onto the structure of the heavens. Um, if you believe, as the Stoics did, that really ultimately all the gods are one god, and that there is one divine power and logic, um, then you can start to make the claim, which we now take for granted, that all men are created equal. And so not only Christianity, but the American founding reaches deeply into this idea. Um, Stoicism was the place that they found it to work with in the Greco-Roman world, and the, only the fact that Christianity so instilled this idea into us um, and so kind of exported it across 
the world, only that fact makes it difficult for us to see that it's not just something that falls out of the sky. It's something that has to be drawn, extracted out of the resources of, of Western philosophy. So we're all essentially Stoics in that respect, at least. Got it. Uh, another quote from you. Quote, For the Stoics, strokes of bad luck and reversals of fortune were sources of invaluable wisdom. Uh, two things. One, is that really just come down to, hey, don't get your hopes too up, uh, up too high? Or, or, or is there more to it than that? And the second thing is, Spencer, will, will you please impart this truth to, to your millennial peers, please? <laughs> Listen, I'm out here doing my best. I'm doing the work, as we say, among millennials. Um, but, you know, Stoicism begins with Zeno of Sidium. He's the founding scholar, which is just to say head teacher. And it begins when Zeno, on a business trip, essentially, gets shipwrecked and washes ashore, makes his way to Athens, and has to kind of reorient himself after a major disaster. And as he's looking around the Athenian uh, marketplace, the marketplace not only of goods but of ideas, uh, which is at this point bustling with various alternative ways of looking at things, um, he happens upon cynicism, which is sort of a very close forebear of, of Stoicism. And one of the things that cynicism teaches is, is not just, you know, take it on the chin, um, but that actually disasters, when you are brought down from a great height of prosperity, um, this reveals something fundamental about you that was always true, but was hidden by your wealth. Another thing that Christianity, I think, can affirm, you know, the Psalms say, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved, I shall never be shaken, and then you, Lord, turned your hand upon me, and I cried out to you, that when you're in the desert, when you're in the wilderness, when you get shipwrecked, um, then you suddenly know your true nature as a creature, as a dependent being, um, as somebody for whom anything can change on a dime. And again, this is not a, a kind of obvious observation in the ancient world, and slavery uh, especially is sort of a misfortune that was taken as a matter of course, but was understood to be a, a, a terrible disaster, a terrible misfortune. Um, one of the authors in this book, though, uh, Epictetus the Stoic, was himself a slave. Uh, Seneca, although he was not a slave, worked in perilous conditions under the Emperor Nero, which eventually <laughs> led to his death, his forced suicide. Um, and gradually, over time, it turns out that all of these guys are tapping into something about their suffering and their misfortune uh, that is, is really crucial to everything that they think about, about ethics. This famous idea of stoicism that we have now, you know, stiff upper lip, uh, don't complain too much. This is kind of what, what we're talking about here, um, but it's, it's really a form of equanimity. It's... it's attempting to kind of connect your emotional life to the reality of the of what you actually are, what you can really expect. We deceive ourselves into thinking that wealth will last. Actually, nothing has changed. We're still the same vulnerable, naked apes that we were before. And so when you get then to Marcus Aurelius, who is catapulted in the opposite direction, who ends up after being quite distant in line for the throne, suddenly placed upon it, after really much preferring the library and his books and always kind of wanting to get back there. Um, this is why that guy, the guy who finds himself at the top of the known world, uh, is able to find his deepest, his best wisdom in, the, in a handbook written by 
a slave. I mean, it's it's kind of a remarkable thing, and and the meditations has a, a, a distinct, I think, a unique quality in ancient pagan literature for this exact reason. Now, uh, <laughs> whether it requires a catastrophe on the order of magnitude of a personal shipwreck or indeed regime failure to get this across to a generation such as my own that doesn't really seem to have internalized it um, is something we're going to have to just wait and find out, I'm afraid. I hope not, but that is one easy and quick way of getting the point across. All right. You know, Aurelius, you say Aurelius begins, actually everyone ought to begin with a simple query. Quote, either Providence or Adams. What, what was his conception of Providence here? Right. And so when, when Aurelius places that uh, alternative before himself, which he does again and again in the meditations, um, what he's really saying is that either Stoicism is right or Epicureanism is right. And I, I take him to be saying that he understands this as the fundamental distinction between these two philosophies. Um, and so maybe a, a way to think about what providence is, is to first think about what atoms are in that statement and what they represent, because providence must be the opposite somehow of, of atoms. Um, atoms, as I said before, we're talking about Epicurus, um, atoms are the brute mechanisms of a physical nature, a purely corporeal uh, machine that's churning away, much like the universe imagined by some, but not all, of our modern physicists. If you look at, for instance, string inflationary cosmology, which is this kind of universe-producing machine designed to cough up world after world. That's basically what Epicurus and after him Lucretius had built as well. They had created in their minds this idea of how the world could come to be uh, totally without the intervention of any supernatural force. Because why would the gods care about us? They have everything they need. They're blessed in the realms beyond. And the ways that we kind of bicker and fall apart don't matter to them at all. So the contrast to this, um, which is providence, which is nous or logos, right, which is the, the god who reigns over all things in, in Stoicism, is a personality, an intention behind the organizing structure of the world, that we don't have this infinite field of unending possibilities randomly coughing up different outcomes. Uh, we actually have a, a, an organized, a coherent whole, and the organizing principle of that whole is a mind, something like yours or mine, although vastly more powerful. Um, this doesn't mean that Marcus Aurelius's Zeus is looking down the way perhaps the Christian God is and taking a real personal interest in your salvation. And in fact, Aurelius seems to think that after we die, we will be absorbed back into the kind of all soul, the cosmic order. Um, but it does mean that the things which happen aren't simply brute facts. They have a kind of um, ideal intention to them, that there are, they are as they must be um, in a world that is designed to be the best possible world, uh, which enables you, for instance, to say things like, well, this guy at work is really a pain in my neck, um, and yet somehow in some grand scheme of things, it could not be otherwise, and so I'm going to attempt to approach him with a certain degree of love and compassion. Um, two words that are very much at the forefront of the ancient Stoic model, although they're not always immediately associated with the 
philosophy, that really what we're aiming at is a harmony, a peace with things as they are, things that happen. And one of the things I tried to stress in the intro is you really can only do this. Aurelius, or yeah, Aurelius knows you can only do this um, if you have a real conviction that there is providence and not just atoms, not only material forces, but actually some intention and care behind the design of the universe. What is the response to people who say that Stoicism seems to require a certain distance and, and heartlessness? Well, there are passages that are quoted in this very volume that would really support that claim. I'm thinking in particular of a moment in Epictetus where he advises uh, that you should regard the death of a child, not unlike the way you would regard the breaking of your neighbor's cup, uh, that if you hear somebody next door broke a pot, uh, you shouldn't be any more upset about that than that your your own child has died. Um, And if you kind of lifted that passage up and just looked at it out of context, you might think, wow, this is actually a kind of inhuman philosophy. It requires of us a certain degree of uh, detachment that we we don't find morally attractive at all. Um, indeed, in Diogenes Laertius, who records a lot of colorful stories about some of these philosophers, uh, we hear about one Stoic, Diogenes the Turncoat, who basically felt this way, that when he got an eye disease, he decided he couldn't just be indifferent. It was obviously very painful, and so he abandoned Stoicism uh, for that reason. So there's got to be something more to this than just, you know, shrug it all off and and stiff upper lip. Um, And what I think is actually going on here is something kind of like the inverse of the Christian invitation to love thy neighbor as thyself. And this is one place where Christianity, I think, um, does depart from or advance beyond Stoicism as a a moral code. Um, And that is, you know, Christianity says, the suffering and the misfortune that we all experience is something that could happen to any one of us. And so out of that, we need to have a kind of investment in our brother's well-being, the way that we have an investment in our own well-being. Stoicism says something like the inverse of that. Because misfortune is everywhere, because you or your neighbor may at any time suffer something terrible and, and will certainly see death, um, Resist attachment to anybody, yourself included, uh, that would allow you to be plunged into despair at one of the misfortunes that you can certainly expect in life. One of Seneca's letters is about the burning of a town that is now called Lyon, um, which was a, a Roman settlement that evaporated in fire overnight. And he uses this as a kind of object lesson for his addressee to argue that this is, you know, we, we shouldn't have gotten so attached in, in the first place. Uh, because really we're just setting ourselves up for, for failure. Um, so it's, if you like, it's a kind of protective mechanism, um, but it doesn't entail not caring about people. It just entails trying very hard to care about people as they are, which is to say mortal and frail. You translated the letters from Seneca in, in the volume. That's right. Your, yourself. And the first one actually congratulates uh, Lucilius for treating his slaves as part of the family, for giving them some, a certain equal human, basic humanity. Now, was this, was this you sort of implied this a, a short while ago, was this an unusual position at the time? I mean, it also includes quite a denunciation of the licentious master. 
absolutely. And I think we can see that it was an unusual thing to say by the way that Seneca imagines possible objections to his argument. And what's interesting is he's writing in, as you say, to congratulate Lucilius. And, and yet, he seems to think that this is a, a, a rare and unusual thing. He's impressed that, that this is going on. Um, because what he says is, you know, people are going to overhear me saying this, or they're going to read this letter, and they're going to say, well, but they're just, they're just slaves. And he repeats this objection again and again um, in one of the most famous and I think moving passages. Well, they're just a slave. Yes, indeed, a slave and your brother. Well, but they're just a slave. No, no, they're your fellow messmates. They are insisting on the humanity of, of the slave and, right, indicting, really painting an extremely ugly portrait of abusive masters, which is something, the closest thing I can think of to that picture in ancient literature is the, uh, is, is old comedy, is, is the Attic dramatists who would portray these sort of over-the-top figures. Um, in Aristophanes, there's, there's plenty of abusive masters, there's plenty of clever slaves, and there's plenty of lazy slaves, because everybody is portrayed in the most disgusting possible light. Um, but here we have that scene, which is supposed to be kind of funny most of the time, um, transformed, really, into this object of enormous pathos, the sexual excess, the uh, sheer abuse of the guy that has to just stand by and, you know, cut the meat and take care of every sneeze and hiccup that the, the master has, um, really turning the master into a grotesque figure and reminding again and again that, you know, there have been masters who found themselves one day at petitioning for the favor of their former slaves because, they, you know, these things can change so quickly. Um, and, and for that reason, you know, a whole new kind of picture, I think, of the master-slave relationship comes into view. The slave as your brother and the abusive master as not somebody who's just, you know, making use of his, his property rights, uh, but somebody that really deserves our, our scorn and has a kind of ugliness to it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it seems to me that one of the arguments, the Stoic arguments, for taking misfortune with a, a, as much equanimity or, or recognizing that it could be actually beneficial in terms of wisdom also is that, you know, when, when things happen, you know, it's not always clear whether this is a good or a bad thing. The thing you thought was absolutely horrible hmm. turned out to be not so horrible. Or the thing, hmm. oh my goodness, all my wishes have come true. And then, of course, you know, the cosmic irony of some kind kicks in. Nature, uh, les no, this is actually the, this is the, one of the worst things that could have happened to you. Is there that 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 uncertainty or that irony that that crops up in the in the Stoic texts? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, this is something which we get in some some of the Zen Buddhist tales. You know, I remember when I was a little kid, I had a book of of Zen stories, and one of them was called "Who Knows What's Good or Bad," and that was the mantra that every time something would happen to the disciple, the master would say, "Who knows what's good or bad." Um, and ultimately, of course, you know, I have to go off to war, um, but my horse's leg, my horse's leg is broken, and so now I don't have to go. So I thought that this was a terrible misfortune, but actually it saves me. Um, Aurelius reflects on this uh, often, that actually a lot of our judgments about good and bad fortune are not only irrelevant because we can't 
change the things we're getting so upset about. They're kind of doubly useless because they are based on assumptions that are totally unfounded, things that we just simply don't know about what's going to happen in the future. Um, and this is one of the most practical pieces of, of Stoic advice. You know, it, it doesn't always save you from, from fretting, but it does kind of, I think, you know, the more you kind of know, take notice of this, that, oh, I spent a whole week, you know, really desperate for that promotion or really miserable that, you know, fearing that uh, it, it wasn't going to come down the line. And then I got it, and now I kind of hate all my coworkers, <laughs> and I was so much happier before when I had less pressure. Um, you know, to kind of realize that is to take a certain step back, uh, to, to create some distance between yourself and the catastrophizing that we all do, or at least I do. You know, every morning you wake up and you've got things that you want so badly and things that you're afraid of. Um, and, right, the Stoics are, are often kind of reminding us that you don't actually have any idea what you're talking about. So this is all just, a, the, the pain is in your mind. The book is Gateway to the Stoics, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, Epictetus' Enchiridion, and Selections from Seneca's Letters. Spencer Clavin, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 